In these next four weeks, I'd like to share four themes that have impacted me. I'd like to uh, share with you some ideas that over the last 50 years or so have shaped how I see things. And today, I want to share with you some words from Jesus, some words from a plastic surgeon, and some words from me. The words of Jesus are powerful. You know, I, I've said this here before. He's very disturbing. You know, he says stuff like, when somebody does this, what are you supposed to do? Turn the other cheek. And I'm saying, when was the last time you saw that happen? Inside the church, outside the church. I read that. I say, that's not American. Like John Wayne would never do that. Back, those of you who are younger, John Wayne used to be big. And they, you know, he, he'd gun you down like in the name of the Lord or something. Say, take that pilgrim, you know, or something. But, you know, what's that about? Well, it's about not letting the other guy determine the rules. Not playing by the other guy's rules, but understanding that when you come into the kingdom of God, it shapes your life. You see things in a different way. But the words of Jesus are powerful. I have an attorney friend in D.C. who's an international attorney and Yale graduate, you know, he's got all this kind of stuff. And he, <clears throat> he and I have had discussions about Jesus. He's big on God. He wasn't always sure about Jesus. And we used to exchange books at Christmas. And one Christmas, I gave him a small leather-bound copy of the Bible, and it was a red-letter edition of the Bible. Now, in, in the Bible, wherever Jesus speaks in a red-letter edition, his words are in red. And when you read this book, the Gospels, those have words of Jesus, and you read the Revelation, the last book in the Bible, that's got some words of Jesus, and Acts has a little bit, a few words of Jesus, and then 2 Corinthians, at the place I'm going to read this morning, has some words from Jesus. But it's, it's Jesus' words that are in the red letters. And um, after I gave him this Bible, not long later, I was invited to come to a Bible study for some senators, and I was a little nervous, because I'm a kid from East Oakland, California, I'm not used to hanging out with senators, and I said to my friend John, I said, John, what should I tell him? He said, let me think about that. A couple days later, he calls me up and says, tell him that the red stuff is the best stuff. So I thought that was pretty good. But the, 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 idea, the idea that I want to share with you this morning is captured in the life of the Apostle Paul. Paul was this terrorist guy. He, he was a guy who would come into places like this and kill us or put us in prison. That was his deal. And then his life was transformed in this powerful experience on the road to Damascus. And in, in his earlier years, in following Jesus, he planted a church in a place called Corinth. Corinth is a city that sits on the southern edge of Greece. And Athens to, is to the north. Now, if you're in Athens, you're with old money and you're thinking deep thoughts and you're into Aristotle and Plato and all that. And if they had cars back then, you'd be driving a Bentley. If you're in Corinth, that's a crazy place. That's a cross between Hollywood and Fort Lauderdale during spring break. There you got wild women on the streets, you got sailors, you got new money, and you're driving Ferraris. So it's this crazy place that he, he did this church plant. In the decade following the church plant, some guys came in and tried to sort of disallow his apostolic authority. They, they came and said, he's not really an apostle. He wasn't like Peter had been with Jesus, but Paul hadn't been with Jesus. He was sort of adopted or grafted in later. And Paul ends up defending himself. And he defends himself in a couple of ways. One is practical, where he says, okay, boys, why don't you take your shirts off? Let's see how many stripes you have from Roman cat and nine tails. And then we'll see who's got the, who's got the street credentials, Okay. The other way he defended himself was to say that 
he had had mystical experience, revelations from God. Now, in our culture, in Western culture, if you have visions and dreams and you walk into work, you know, you say, I had this dream last night and I'm getting guidance from the dream. People would say, well, you know, maybe you've been smoking stuff or whatever if you're in Colorado. But the, but the, but the, point, but the point is that, that we don't give as much credence to visions and dreams. But in other places in the world, visions and dreams are given a lot of credence. And in the 12th chapter of 2 Corinthians, this is how Paul says it. Listen to how it reads. Now, I'll just read it for you. Verse 2, it says, I know a man in Christ who 14 years ago was caught up to the third heaven. Whether it was in the body or out of the body, I do not know. God knows. And I know that this man, whether in the body or apart from the body, I don't know, but God knows, was caught up to paradise. He heard inexpressible things, things that man is not permitted to tell. I'll boast about a man like that, but I'll not boast about myself except about my weaknesses. So he's like talking about himself in the third person. Verse 7, to keep me from becoming conceited because of these surpassingly great revelations, there was given me a thorn in my flesh. Interesting designation. He's saying, I saw all these incredible things. And to balance that out, I've got this problem, whatever it is, we don't know. He even calls it here a messenger from Satan to torment me. Three times I pleaded with the Lord to take it away from me. Now, theologians and scholars have looked at this text over the years, and they're surmising maybe it was an eye problem that he had, or maybe it was some emotional distress or some big thing. that was, We don't know what it was, but it was, it was enough that it just bugged the life out of him, if you will. And this is what he says Jesus said to me. Here are the words of Jesus again. But he said to me, my grace is sufficient for you, for my power is made perfect in weakness. Therefore, Paul says, I'll boast all the more gladly about my weaknesses so that Christ's power may rest on me. When you, when you look at this, the, 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 the sentence the scripture verse, my grace is sufficient for you for my power is made perfect in weakness. When I read that, it grabs me and I like the words in it. And this is where I wish I had a Bible that had inflection. I'd, I'd like to know whether it is my grace or my grace or my grace is or my grace is sufficient. Or I, I don't know. What, but, but I like the, the ideas of grace and power. Those, those words I like. The words I'm not so big on are sufficient and weakness. Those don't grab me as much. Now, sufficient here is the key word. The root word or the root idea behind this word is that it has the capacity to ward off or resist or defend against something. So the idea that something is strong enough to defend against any danger is captured in the word sufficient. Ruth and I are in a small group in Fort Collins, Colorado, where we live. We're in a group of three other couples. And one of the couples, he is a plastic surgeon from South Africa. His wife is a nurse. And um, they moved to this country some years ago. And he's a world-class surgeon. Uh, for seven years before coming to Colorado six years ago, he taught plastic surgery uh, at Penn State University Medical School in Hershey, Pennsylvania. And his specialty was cleft palates in babies. 
So a little baby is born with a cleft palate. Very intricate surgery. Very challenging. That's his specialty. Now he does all other kinds of surgeries. He does all kinds of reconstructions. and He's a, he's a maxofacial surgeon. So when people are in auto accidents, he puts their faces back together. It's really incredible how he works. But one day, one evening, after our small group, he called me to the side. He said, Dick, come over here and stand in the light. So I walked over. And he moved in close to me, like uncomfortably close to me. And he started putting his hands on my face. And I'm saying, whoa, 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 what are we doing here? And he said, well, I noticed you have a little thing under your eye right there. And I think it may be a precancerous lesion. We probably need to take that off. I said, really? He said, yeah, why don't you swing by the office? And so I went to his office and he laid me down and he did the lidocaine thing or whatever they put in there to numb it. And then he takes a scalpel very close to my eye and he, and he cuts a thing right in my smile line. So if you were to come up close to me after service and stand close, uh, you couldn't see where he did it because when he did it, he took a lot of real tiny baby stitches, just a whole bunch of them. And when we got done, I said to him, so Mark, how many, uh, how many stitches did you put in there? And he just looked at me and grinned and said, sufficient. I'm saying, like, what kind of an answer is that? Sufficient? Why don't you 23 or 32 or tell me? I mean, give me a number here. And he said, you know, it's like back in the day. Rolls-Royce was one of the greatest manufacturers of cars and still is the manufacturer of engines. They, they, uh, this is the 1930s. In the 1930s, Rolls-Royce was instrumental in helping to send land and air records. Uh, a guy named uh, Eisen, Eisen, George Eisen in 1937 broke the world land record at 312 miles an hour in a car that was powered by two Rolls-Royce engines. And today when you get on aircraft civilly or in military aircraft or even in submarines, you'll find parts of them manufactured by Rolls-Royce. So they're top of the line. I mean, they're first water, first cabin people. And he, and he said in the owner's manuals of those cars back in the day, when it came to the line that said horsepower for the engine, all it said was sufficient. It doesn't say 382 or 512, just says sufficient. And I'm saying, but sufficient or adequate or enough doesn't sound like enough. I mean, why doesn't he use language here like he uses in Ephesians 3 when he's talking about God? And he says, now to him who is able to do far more abundantly than all that we ask or think, according to the power at work within us, to him be glory in the church and in Christ Jesus throughout all generations forever and ever. Amen. Now, now we're talking. Now he's talking about it. He's stacking on adjectives and nouns and verbs and stuff like that. But that's his view of God. I mean, we can't find enough words to describe him, but when he describes himself and his power and his grace, and we say, so how much you got? Give me some of that. What do you got for me there? He says one word, sufficient, enough. See, God's grace is enough. It's simply enough. If you have a 10-ounce glass, 13 ounces isn't going to do you any good. You got three ounces wasted there. He knows my need. He knows my capacity. 
He knows my future. My problem is that I have thought of enough as sort of like average or okay. When in fact, enough is just right. It's just right. Precision in almost anything. In an engine, in air quality, in, I mean, you name the thing. To be precise is really critical. To get these chairs when they're built just sort of okay doesn't get it. Not if you want to stack them. They've got to be exact in order to be enough. I, um, I have a couple of friends who are both now with the Lord. I've commented to folks, I need to get some younger friends. You know, but the, Jim Miller was an architect at the University of Illinois for many years. He ran the design group. He studied, un, studied under Frank Lloyd Wright. Uh, he was a brilliant guy, and his specialty was designing campuses around the world, university campuses. He came to Bethany when I was president there years ago, and he redesigned the campus, did a master plan for the campus, and he'd get up early in the morning and walk around the campus, take pictures. And then at noon, he'd walk around the campus, take pictures. And then in the evening, he'd go back and take pictures and walk around. He did this for several days. And finally, I said, Jim, why do you do that? What do you? He said, well, you, when, you, when you walk around and you sense things at different times of the day and so forth, pretty soon, the land starts talking to you. And it says, put a building here. Put a building there. And I said, so how do you know what kind of building to put there? He said, well, you want one that's appropriate to the context. We're in the Santa Cruz Redwoods, the coastal Redwoods of California. You don't want to put a glass envelope here. You don't want a 20-story glass envelope like you'd put in downtown Portland. You want, you want something that fits right here. And I said, well, what do you call it when you get it just right? What do you call it? He said, what we call that is elegant. Later, I was talking to another friend who was one of the top chemists at the University of Illinois. His specialty was spectroscopy, which is the use of light for scientific measurement. And I just, um, I said, you know, you scientists, you don't talk in terms of absolutes, you talk in terms of probabilities. I said, what do you call it when an experiment always comes out the same way? Why wouldn't that be absolute? Why wouldn't you call that an absolute? He said, well, when we do an experiment and it comes out the same over and 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 over again, if it came out the same 100 times, the word we would use for that is elegant. Sufficient here is not a noun, it's a verb. It's in the present tense and it indicates God's constant availability of his grace to me. The affliction wasn't removed. Paul had the problem. All God was saying is that my grace covers that. My grace is enough to ward off the impact of that. He understands our case. He knows our malady. And he responds to it in an elegant, just right way. Or Jesus says, let me say it another way. Fourth phrase. My power is made perfect in weakness. My grace is sufficient or to put it another way, my power is made perfect in weakness. He models that in Philippians, the second chapter, where it says that Jesus had the power and he let go of it to take on human form, take on a servant's life, and die a criminal's death. And it's like I take him because I can't stand his rightness, and I throw him on the cross and I say, there, take that. 
that took care of him. And he says, fine, that's the way I'll love you both. Let me redeem you with this. So I'll take on that weakness, I'll take all your weaknesses and all your sinnings and all of that, and I'll turn that inside out and show you my power. His power shows up in that weakness. My friend Mark, the plastic surgeon, is a great aficionado of um, model airplanes, remote-controlled model airplanes. You know, you see some of these guys fly those babies around, and they're, they're all kinds. And he had a helicopter. One of his favorites was a helicopter, and he got a new rotor for his helicopter. This is about a year after he worked on me. And um, he was testing it in the garage, and I said, how do you test that? He said, well, you put the rotor on, and I tighten down the lug nut on the top, and then you hold on to it, and you rev it up. So he said, I revved it up the first time. And when he revved it up the second time, the lug nut had a defect in it and it broke. And that rotor came off spinning it who knows how fast and went through the left lens of his glasses, penetrated his eye and destroyed his left eyeball. They did several surgeries to try to save it and they couldn't and now he has a prosthetic eye. What Mark found out was that his grace was sufficient for that. Today, if you were to go to Mark, he's a premier plastic surgeon in our area. If you were going in for reconstruction of some kind or something, he would call you in and sit you down and he would say this. He'd say, you need to understand that I have one eye. But that one eye is sufficient to do what you do. He's doing the little things with the cleft palates in babies. He's doing major breast reconstructions for cancer survivors. He's doing all kinds of things for auto accident victims. And his peer, what's interesting is the impact that that has had over the last two years on his peers in the medical community. First of all, he was back in surgery three months after his eye was lost. But secondly, how he walked through that trusting God, saying, I don't know the why of this, I wouldn't have chosen this, but his grace is sufficient in my weakness. His power, God's glory and his power shows up in this apparent accident, but the, the expression of God's grace in that was just powerful. That impediment, that weakness, that deficiency was overwhelmed by God's sufficiency. Just think in your mind for a minute, where you are deficient, where I'm deficient, he is sufficient. That's the equation. Wherever you're weak, that's where his power shows up. As a matter of fact, his glory shows up because his power is expanded, is matured in your weakness. His power shows up in our weakness. I know this personally. Those of you who know my story, please count Please uh, bear with me. I've told you pieces of this before. I'm counting on your memory loss as I move forward this morning. But I have to tell you that every time I stand up to speak, I'm amazed. You say, well, that's, that's a little arrogant, isn't it? No, I don't, I don't mean I'm amazed by what I say. I'm amazed by the fact that I'm able to say it without impediment. When I was three and a half years old, my parents went as missionaries to South India. We were in New York City in the summer of 1945. They had a scarlet fever epidemic in the city. I caught scarlet fever. It went into a mastoid infection in my ears. These 
areas right behind your ear. And the, and the doctor said, if we don't arrest this, if there's no way to stop it, it's going to go into Dickie's brain and kill him. At least it'll make him deaf. Even with surgery, we're not sure that he won't be deaf. And so my parents sent night letters to all the churches supporting us out here on the West Coast. Three days later, they came in for a preoperative exam. And early in the morning, the doctor called my father and said, Mr. Foth, I'm looking at two sets of x-rays. One is from three days ago, and the other is the one I just took. And there's massive infection three days ago, and I'm looking at one that has no infection at all. There's nothing wrong with this boy. You can come take him home. His grace is sufficient for us. A year later, I'm four and a half years old. I have malignant malaria in the hills of South India, and I'm, um, I'm, I have a 106-degree temperature for three days. I'm delirious. I'm saying crazy things. My folks think it's over, and in the middle of the night, there's a knock on the door, and my mom goes to the door, and here stands a, a little Anglican single-lady missionary from Great Britain, and she said, I was praying, and I felt like the Lord said I was supposed to come and pray for Dickie. She came in and knelt down by my bed, put her hand on me and prayed for me. And that night, my fever broke. I started school that year, and I was just a few months past four. Started school, and they had what they call lower KG, lower kindergarten, and then upper KG, and then first grade. And um, I was in a British boarding school, and they skipped me, the upper KG part. And my mom said years later, I didn't know this, years later she said that when they skipped you, that grade, that's when you began to stutter. And from age five to about age 29, I was a severe stutterer. I stuttered horribly or well, depending on how you view that. And, <laughs> and people say, well, why do people stutter? Well, sometimes it, it's physiological. The anvil and stirrup, the little bones in your ear will fire a hundred thousandth of a second late. So you hear, you know, when you speak, you hear yourself outside and you hear yourself inside your skull. And if the outside is delayed just a tad, it's like having a headset with reverb, and, you, and so you go the, 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 like that. But mostly, for us stutterers, it's internal, and we tighten up here in our, in our diaphragm. And so when we sing, like Mel Tillis, the country singer, he can sing and he doesn't stutter, but when he talks, he stutters. That's just the nature of it. And I would go to speech therapists and they say, you know, you think in paragraphs and you try to speak in sentences and your words get jammed up behind your teeth and you can't get the words out. And so in junior high class, I'm sitting in junior high and they're doing the science reading thing where you're in science class, but they have you read a paragraph going down the rows. And so they're doing two things at the same time. And I'd count the kids between me and the paragraph. And I was just freaked out trying to figure out how I was going to do it because I had huge trouble getting started and I'd cough or say excuse me or do something mechanical with my arm to try to trigger things. That's what we stutterers do to try to get things going. In family devotions, more than once I broke down weeping because I couldn't read it. I couldn't get it out. And then I learned to tell jokes. And I found out that I could memorize jokes and not only that, it made me socially acceptable in groups, at least for most of my jokes. And, and the, that single fact, looking back, I saw that as a healing mechanism in some way. And then I got into drama, and when I, when I was a senior in high school, I got the lead in the term play, The Crucible, by Arthur Miller, and I played John Proctor, who was the lead in the play, and, and I didn't stutter during the play. At the end, they hanged me, but in the, in the middle, I didn't stutter. But the, the idea that if I could memorize the words, then it would work. 
But when I was 16 or 17 and getting ready to go to, to, go to college, I, I thought I was supposed to do this. I thought I was supposed to be in ministry, but if you can't talk, it's not so good. This drags out. And so I said, I'll be a doctor because doctors don't have to talk. They just cut on people. And so I went to Cal Berkeley as a freshman and I took five units of, well, I got five units of D in chemistry 1A and decided not to inflict myself on you in that regard. But I transferred to this little Christian college named Bethany, and I would go to my dorm room, and I'd, I'd read out loud. I just started reading out loud and elongating the syllables. And sometimes I'd read the Bible or Time magazine or newspaper, or I'd read poetry, Elizabeth Barrett Browning, for example. How do I love thee? Let me count the ways. If I took deep breaths and I elongated the syllables, I found I could do it. But I, and I didn't know that that was a speech therapy mechanism that's used with severe stutter. I didn't know that for years after that. I just somehow intuited that, or maybe it was the Holy Spirit that did that. But I found that his grace was sufficient in those situations. And then I met Ruth, this tall, sandy-haired, green-eyed girl, five foot eight, and we started dating, but I was pretty insecure about the relationship because I stuttered. And one night we're driving down West Cliff Drive in Santa Cruz, and I turned to her and said, Ruth, you, 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 you probably would, would, wouldn't want to keep going with me because I can't talk. And she looked at my, me and smiled very sweetly and said, oh, really? I hadn't noticed. And she was dead serious. And it started unlocking my door and letting me out. And then I went to graduate school at Wheaton and I took my first public speaking class. And I'd never taken a public speaking class before. And uh, my whole speaking style revolves around the fact that I stuttered. I'll speak very rapidly for a few moments and stop. Say a few more words and stop say a couple more words and stop. And when I took that class, I got high marks in the effective use of the dramatic pause. And I didn't know, I was just trying to stop, keep from stuttering, I don't know, you know, what do I know? And so, when I stand up to speak at conferences, I'm amazed. When I go to retreats and speak four or five sessions, I'm amazed. His amazing grace is sufficient. His grace is enough for me. His grace is elegant. Some years ago I went with my friend Bill Carmichael from here in Oregon and we went to Venice, Italy and spent five days sitting across the table speaking with Vatican theologians on the subject of the work of the Holy Spirit. And I was amazed. We were totally outclassed intellectually in all these other ways but I could talk and his grace is amazing and I speak at university commencements, and I'm amazed. And then was invited to open the United States Senate in prayer several times, and I was amazed. His amazing grace is sufficient, and this weekend, I'm amazed. Because his grace is enough for you. His grace is enough for me. Jesus comes to say, my grace is enough for you. My power is made perfect in weakness. So my question for you this morning is where is it 
that you are weak. Where are you vulnerable today? Where's that place in your life that you're scared out of your mind? Because it makes you feel fragile or vulnerable. Where's your impediment? Where's the thing that slows you down? It is that place that Jesus wants to move in because he will take that thing and exploit it. He will turn it inside out, put it on like a glove and use it, use it for his glory. You say, how does that, how does that work? How, how does he do that? I have no idea. I, I have no idea how he does that. I just know that he does it. Do you know this song? Jesus loves me, this I know, for the Bible tells me so. Little ones to him belong. They are weak, but he is strong. Let's sing that again, and where they is, let's put we, okay? Jesus loves me, this I know, for the Bible tells me so. Little ones to him belong. We are weak, but he is strong. Yes, Jesus loves me. Yes, Jesus loves me. Yes, Jesus loves me. The Bible tells me so.